3, 2, 1. Hello. This is Victoria your producer. You have discovered the felony file. Formerly known as 542 in the Blue. A podcast, hosted by Scott Lunsford, retired police detective, sergeant, author and researcher. A podcast exploration and discussion of law enforcement history, issues and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains and beyond. Today's Shade of Blue Discussion. The concept of sanity. How crazy is too crazy? Just like anything in life you can have too much. Or too little. Too much sanity. Not enough insanity, can also be an issue. Non-compass mentis. A fine topic for your host, whose own sanity has been called into question. Background music. Hard-boiled. Performed by Kevin McLeod. Used per common licensee. Scott. The control board is on and in your control. One, two, three. Thank you, Victoria, for starting us out. And I guess thank you for the shot you just made on my sanity. Non composmentis, Latin, is a legal term meaning not of sound mind regardless of the precise legal standard the insanity defense is actually rarely raised and even more successfully used in trials according to a study in 2015 i found it says it is used only in about one percent of the cases in the united states and is successful less than 25 percent of the time so 25 percent of one percent. That's not very much. Serial killers John Wayne Gacy and Jeffrey Dahmer both c- claimed insanity, but they were convicted anyway. But the plea has succeeded in a number of high-profile instances. For example, 1981, President Ronald Reagan was shot and wounded in an assassination attempt by John Hinckley Jr as he was returning to his car. In that trial, Hinckley was found not guilty by reason of insanity. As you may recall, in podcast season two, episode two, 160 years ago, Congressman shot and killed the son of Francis Scott Key, not too far away from the White House, and did so in front of witnesses. Congressman Daniel Sickless a politician, Civil War general for the Union, and a U.S. diplomat. Mostly he's remembered for, in legal circles, as being the father of the temporary insanity defense. And if you haven't listened to that particular podcast, first of all, why not? It's not that bad. Anyway, it's still online if you'd like to review it. Uh, Sickless was an outspoken man. He did get in trouble once when he tried to make a point by inviting a prostitute by the name of Fanny White into the New York State Assembly, Uh, even going so far as to introducing Fanny to Queen Victoria during a diplomatic visit. Yeah, he was a who. When he was a congressman, he shot and killed Philip, son of Francis Scott Key, shooting him in Lafayette Square across from the White House in 1859. Key was the local district attorney 
and a prominent Washington, D.C. personality who just so happened was having an affair with the congressman's wife. The congressman surrendered to the attorney general and confessed to the murder. And fortunately for him, he did have some powerful friends like President James Buchanan, Edward Stanton, who we know would become later Secretary of War for Abraham Lincoln. Uh, his excuse was that he had been driven temporarily insane by his wife's infidelity. The concept had not really been tested in court, but in this particular instance it did work. Sickles was acquitted of the murder, with the verdict allowing him to remain in Congress. And this just goes to show what most of us have always pretty much known. You can be too crazy for prison, but apparently never too crazy for serving as a congressman. Go figure. Another insanity defense that worked was for a gentleman by the name of Ed Ginn. G-E-I-N. A lot of you may not remember him or know of him, but he was the role model of sorts and inspiration for some really scary people. Norman Bates from Psycho, Leatherface from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and not to forget Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs. How so? Well, apparently Ed dug up bodies from graveyards near his Wisconsin home and did some very terrible and strange things with remains when he was caught on two homicides. While the investigators were executing a search warrant, they found whole human bones and bone fragments. They found a wastebasket made out of human skin. They found several seat covers that were made out of human skin. They found skulls hanging on his bedpost and a bunch of female skulls and a lot of them with their tops sewn off. He used the sawed off tops of the skulls to make a bone, excuse me, to make a bowl for his cereal apparently in the morning. Nothing says starting a good day like a big skull full of Cheerios I guess. Uh, leggings made from human skin, a corset from a female torso, and skin from the shoulders, several masks that were made out of female heads, the murder victim's face mask was in one location, another murder victim, he had removed her skull and had it in a box, he kept her heart in a plastic bag, he had kept a shoebox full of female reproductive organs. He had a belt made from a female human breast. Four noses. Yeah, just the nose. A lampshade made from the skin of a human face. And a large collection of fingernails from female fingers. Yeah, I know this stuff is not what you learn in history and in school, but that's why we're here. He ultimately confessed to murdering two women, a Mary Hogan in 1954 and a Bernice Warden in 1957. 
Worden's body was found strung up as if she was a deer, her ankles suspended on a long iron bar. Uh, he was getting ready to, or he had, skinned her for her flesh that he would tan and use to make something out of. He was arrested and charged with one murder and went to trial on that one murder, but he was subsequently found to be too crazy and criminally insane and was locked up in a mental health facility. Eleven years later, he was feeling much better then, he was brought out and tried for the latest or the last homicide that he confessed to. He was found guilty, but his guilty plea or guilty sentence was that he had to spend the rest of his life at a mental hospital and he died there in 1984 but unfortunately or fortunately depending on how you want to look at it his influence continues today in the movie industry and in stories and used as reference for a lot of individuals it should be noted this is not just the United States issue right Victoria I imagine in your hometown they've had certain individuals that have been too crazy to try other parts of the world have insanity laws on the books and basically this is you know it's a well-meaning attempt to be humane one case that comes to mind is a is not a murder situation but an excellent example of a sanity defense that was upheld in court and probably needed to be Antoly Moskvin, a Russian gentleman born in 1966. He is a linguist, a philanthropist, and historian. He was arrested in 2011 after the mummified bodies of 26 girls between the ages of 3 and 25 were found in his apartment. After exhuming the bodies from local graveyards, he mummified them himself and then dressed them up and posed them around his house. Now here's the kicker. The dude lived with his parents. Yep, mom and dad shared the apartment with him. And they saw the mummies, but they claimed that they mistook them for just large dolls. Now he's living with his parents, but these weren't exactly Marvel action figures he had laying around the house, if you know what I mean. A psychiatric evaluation determined that he suffered from paranoid schizophrenia. And in May of 2012, he was basically sent and to this day is being held in a psychiatric hospital, but not criminally charged. Moving back closer to home, to North Carolina again. An insanity defense that impacted how a lot of these cases are tried in North Carolina can be found in North Carolina versus Tamilla Lynn Silvers. This case went to the North Carolina Supreme Court in 1989. It seems that Silvers lived in a trailer behind her mother's house in Rutherford County. Silvers apparently had a romantic relationship with a Carlos Rhodes, and eventually they broke up and she started seeing a Philip Doster, D-O-S-T-E-R. 
He was later convicted on drug charges and imprisoned. Carlos began dating a neighbor of Silver's. Now, Silver's didn't like this. She had lost two boyfriends, and apparently she wanted her first one back. The victim's sister and a neighbor testified in court that the victim had expressed fear of Silver and had threatened her, who had threatened her in the weeks before the murder. Another sister of the victim recalled in court to hearing the suspect say in 1985 or 86, she's unsure about which, but that she said she could kill somebody or do anything she wanted to and get by with it because she had been to Broughton Hospital and people thought she was crazy. Now our victim, Connie Davis, spent that last her last day in May of 1987 with her seven-year-old son at a friend's house and then met her boyfriend Carlos and they returned to her trailer. Once they had gotten back to the trailer she received a phone call from Silvers. Silvers stated she had run out of cigarettes and wanted to borrow some. Connie agreed and Silvers walked over to her trailer. They sat down on the sofa and they talked. They had some cigarettes and discussed whatever and without provocation or any indication it was going to happen Silvers drew a steak knife out of her shirt and stabbed Connie Davis in the chest. The steak knife penetrated an artery a lung and the victim's heart. Davis jumped up and the defendant stabbed her again in the upper portion of her left arm. Connie Davis was unconscious as a matter of minutes and died in five to ten minutes, a result of massive eternal bleeding. Silvers was arrested and charged with murder and was referred to an evaluate to be evaluated by the North Carolina Division of Mental Health at Dorothea Dix Hospital in Raleigh, North Carolina. A Bob Rollins, Dr. Bob, a forensic psychiatrist filed a report on an examination with the court and he diagnosed her with chronic schizophrenia and concluded that although she was prevented by her mental illness from distinguishing right from wrong, she was competent to proceed to trial. And then she was released from the hospital and then sent to uh, jail waiting trial. Didn't do too well in jail. She ended up being committed back to Dorothea Dix Hospital where she was analyzed again by Dr. Bob. Now Dr. Bob's examination this time, having a little more information, he found out that Silvers had sent a letter to her former boyfriend who was still in lockup in Spindale, North Carolina. And that particular note referenced the suspect getting high before murdering the victim. And based on this, he revised his opinion somewhat. He concluded that her mental disorder likely was made worse by voluntary intoxication and that she would be considered responsible or should be considered responsible for her actions because of the marijuana use. And he referenced this to intoxication and DWI laws. This was brought up at her trial and also brought up at trial were two individuals who were not mental health professionals. They were actually jailers that observed 
Silvers, the defendant, for quite some time, and they had developed an opinion about her mental state. The judge would not allow them to testify, basing and saying that the mental state was that wasn't their job. They were jailers. But though Silvers was arraigned and she pled not guilty to first-degree murder, and the state did not seek the death penalty, after about 90 minutes of deliberation, jury found her guilty of first-degree murder. There was lots of testimony that at the age of 15 she had suffered a severe injury to the back of her head at a swimming pool. Uh, the accident required hospitalization. Mother said that's when the mental illness issues started. She quit school in the ninth grade and was institutionalized on and off on numerous occasions and was diagnosed as being paranoid schizophrenic. Automatically, of course, the defense appealed the conviction and the conviction went to the North Carolina Supreme Court. The North Carolina Supreme Court found a couple of issues. One, they felt that the jailers who had observed it should have been able to testify. Their information should have been available to the jury based on what they saw. They were not giving medical opinions. They were talking about their observations, but they were not allowed to testify. Also, the fact that the doctor had made almost a legal reference in his report and statements made from the stand, whereas he should only have left his testimony based on his medical expertise, not his legal expertise. The whole case was sent back to the lower courts. Now, what the doctor had made his decision on or his reevaluation was the fact again that Silvers had consumed some marijuana. Now, this was information that came out in a letter that she had sent to her boyfriend, Philip Doster, who was at Spindale Prison Camp in Spindale, North Carolina. Got a copy of that letter. Victoria has converted that into a simulated audio of that particular letter. Uh, Victoria, can you go ahead and play that? Philip. Hey, hey, they've got me. They got me for first degree murder. Guess who I killed? Connie Kennedy. Philip, I don't know what in the hell got into me. I went crazy. I got high and I was real depressed. I went and got a knife. I put it in my bra. I called Connie and asked her if I could borrow a few cigarettes. Hell, I had a whole pack. I walked out there and sat on the couch and lit a cigarette. And then I got the knife out and I stabbed her right in the heart. She jumped up and I stabbed her to death. It was awful. I'm at Dorothea Dix right now. There's some nice staff here. And nice murders too. I have to stay here 10 days and then they put me back in jail. The tests to determine a defendant's mental capacity to proceed to trial are found in North Carolina law, just like they're found everywhere else. They outline everything as simply as it can possibly be, but as in most law, 
cases, it's really up to interpretation in the circumstances of that particular case. North Carolina state law says no person may be tried, convicted, sentenced, or punished for a crime when by reason of mental illness or defect that person is unable to understand the nature and object of the proceedings, comprehend the situation in reference to the proceedings, or to assist in his or her defense in a rational and reasonable manner. North Carolina's legal definition is based on what is referred to as the McNaughton test. And that's a case that happened in 1843. The case states the test as follows. An accused individual is legally insane and exempt from criminal responsibility by reason thereof if commits an act which would otherwise be punishable by a crime and at the time of doing so is laboring under such a defect of reason from disease of the mind as to be incapable of knowing the nature and quality of the act is doing so or if he or she does know this incapable of distinguishing between right and wrong. Now, like I said, a jury found Silver's guilty of first-degree murder in the stabbing death of Connie Davis in about 90 minutes of deliberation and convicted her on first-degree murder. The North Carolina Supreme Court threw out the verdict, saying a judge didn't allow testimony about Silver's psychiatric problems, including the fact that she heard voices. Silver spent five years at Broughton Psychiatric Hospital in Morganton, and in 1993, a court hearing was set to see if she could be released. And of course, this was a terrible blow to the victim's family. Silver was later released, tried again, and convicted. The Department of Correction states that her commitment correction her conviction date was 10-21-1987 in Rutherford County her sentence began that same date 1987 her release date from the Department of Corrections for the state of North Carolina was February 27 1989 two years later now there's several other famous cases that have come up. One that's quite memorable is Andrea Yates, who drowned her five children. She confessed to doing so. When asked why she did so, why she drowned her children in the bathtub, she was asked if she was mad at them. She said no. She thought that she had been possessed by the devil and in order to protect her children, she had to kill them before the devil got a hold of them. Guilty or not guilty? Mentally ill, not guilty by reason of insanity? Well, it's a good question. Now the answer by the Te Harris County, Texas jury came after only three and one half hours of deliberation. Guilty, guilty to first degree murder. 
and she was sentenced six days later to life in prison. She'll be 77 years old before she is eligible for parole. And there is no doubt she was seriously mentally ill. She had been treated for postpartum depression and psychosis, had been hospitalized four times. Twice she had attempted to kill herself. The psychosis returned after the birth of her fifth child. If Yates doesn't qualify as not guilty by reason of insanity, who would? But this brings up the moral issue that we as a so-called civilized civilization like to think is settled. A person should be held responsible for actions and choices. We supposedly have the power of reasoning, but that puts us on a higher plane above the rest of the animal kingdom. She came to believe that she was possessed by the devil, and the only way to save her children from the evil one for all eternity was to kill them now, so they could get to heaven before he got a hold of them. Is this a choice she should be held responsible for? Or was her mind wired in such a way that protecting her children and being a good mother didn't mean the same thing as it meant to other people? We as humans have the insanity defense because the intention to commit an illegal act is a basic element of criminal conduct. Old English law for more than 400 years declared that children and what they referred to as lunatics lack the mental capacity to form criminal intent. The question has always been how to limit the defense so that the bad guys can't claim to have acted under some delusion and go free. By the middle of the 19th century, the test was somewhat a defendant was insane if he did not know the nature and quality quantity of what he did, or he did not did know it and he didn't know that it was wrong. And this ended up being a loophole that developed that everyone had basically been afraid of happening and came to fruition with the congressman and then John Hinckley, who was found not guilty by reason of insanity for attempting to assassinate the president. The mental illness test went out the window pretty much at that point, and federal law in many states returned to the right or wrong standard. Based on Yates' confession, the state could say the whole case in one sentence would be she knew it was wrong. Therefore, she's guilty. Now, in most trials and investigations, both sides will tend to look to experts to determine how to proceed in a trial or how to proceed in an investigation. And when it comes to testimony by or direction by experts, a now retired attorney who practiced in Buncombe County was sitting with me while we observed a court trial waiting for our our own trial to start, once told me that the quality of expertise of an expert depends on the quality of the pockets on each side of the argument. And to quote Blazing Saddles, who can argue with that? Well, thank you guys for listening to my lunatic ravings on the insanity defense. Be sure to come back next Saturday when we'll have another shade of blue for you to listen to. Check out our web pages. Victoria will give you the rundown on those. 
and my books available on Amazon.com. In the meantime, remember, try to be safe and be secure. And if you have the opportunity, do something good for somebody. Do something nice. It's the right thing to do, and it'll make you feel better and definitely help somebody else out. All right, Victoria, go ahead and close us out. Take us away. Thanks, y'all, for listening. Bye, y'all. You have been listening to The Felony Files, hosted by Scott Lunsford. For more information on this podcast or Scott's books and writings, go to scottlunsfordauthor.com or to the new website, felonyfiles.com. Scott can also be reached through the web pages. This is Victoria, your producer. 2. 1. End. Thomas J. Page 192. Page 68. Page 17.